Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we are thankful for your word, for its truth and power. Please bless Professor Hardin as he brings us your word this morning and help us all to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may lead fruitful lives to the glory of your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. Philippians 4, 9. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In all and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Harden. I am a member of Geneva Campus Church, and um, I'm also a professor in the Department of Integrated Biology here at UW-Madison. If you're a visitor with us, welcome, and um, it, it's, uh, we're glad that you could be with us this morning. Uh, before we look at the passage that Susan read so very well for us a moment ago, I uh, would like to encourage you all to continue to pray for our pastoral staff. Um, they're both away this weekend. The Winowskis, as you may know, are on a much-needed break from Madison. So please pray for them that they would have a time of refreshment. And uh, Jim and Hannah Kirk, part of Team Kirk, are away at New York State this week for a quick getaway. And uh, Jim will be back with us for next Sunday. Well, uh, one of the running jokes in our household, that's Geneva speak for a small group Bible study, uh, is that our younger members call the more mature members experienced. Uh, maybe that's a euphemism for being decrepit, I'm not sure, but um, you know, there are some ways in which being mature um, gives the experienced people among us some longitudinal perspective. And that includes, I think, uh, where I work here at, at UW-Madison. As I've thought about the changes in UW-Madison over the last few years, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that contentment is in shorter supply than it has been in the past. Uh, the University of Wisconsin has experienced a great deal of turbulence in recent years that's made the pages of the New York Times over the last few years and other national media outlets changes in tenure policies for people like me, faculty, continued fiscal challenges, lots of struggles that have increased the sense of restlessness at UW-Madison. And you know, it's not just people in the university community, I think. Psychologists have been studying the phenomenon called the fear of missing out, FOMO, for quite some time now. 
You may have heard of this. Um, the fear that you might be missing out on something even better than what you're doing right at this moment. And um, uh, studies show that it's clearly true, at least for millennials, that this gnawing feeling is fueled by incessant comparisons, and that's really made possible by social media. And it's not just millennials, it's, it's really all of us. Since 2008 um, and the Great Recession, the Harris Organization has been conducting an annual poll, uh, and they published the results in what they call their happiness report. The 2017 version of the happiness report reported that only 31% of people in the United States consider themselves to be happy. And those numbers have been pretty flat since 2008. Now, happiness and the deeper notion of contentment aren't exactly the same. But I would argue that these things are signs that our society is crying out for real contentment. And the question is, Where can we find that sort of lasting contentment that we, in this room, and as a society, so badly need? Well, what if I told you that there was a secret to contentment, and it's available to everybody here today? Now, I know that sounds perhaps like a TV infomercial, you know, the kind that, where they say, uh, just for uh, two easy payments of $19.99, Um, you, you can have what, what they're selling. And in fact, you can have two of those things as long as you pay extra shipping and handling for the second one. I'm not talking about that kind of instant gratification or instant contentment. But I am talking about something that our passage speaks to from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Because it gives us some crucial hints, I think, regarding the kind of uncommon contentment that ought to characterize us as Christians in the 21st century in Madison in an era of discontentment. Well, if you were here last week, um, you'll remember that David Williams spoke to us from Ephesians 2.10. He told us, as Paul says, that for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do so that we would walk in them. David told us that we are God's poema, his craftsmanship, his, his artistry. And David's wise words were that, and I'm quoting David here, your life's meaning and purpose are not DIY projects. Your life is primarily God's project. That was a powerful invitation, I think, to lean into God's process for shaping us as his craftsmanship. And our passage today looks at that process in the life of the Apostle Paul. I know for some of us here, uh, you might find Paul a bit intimidating. After all, we call him St. Paul. He's one of the great saints of the church. And yet Paul says in verse 9, as Susan read for us already this morning, whatever you've learned or received or heard in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. That's verse 9. So um, really, we can't let ourselves off the hook. Uh, in fact, Paul's life is beckoning us to discover his secret of contentment. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to explore three things with you from Paul's life this morning. First, what did Paul discover? What did he discover? Secondly, how did he discover it? What was his method? And third, what difference did it make for Paul? And then I want to finish by talking about some applications for us here at Geneva Campus Church. Let's start with what Paul discovered. 
Paul shows us that he was dialed in to ideas floating around in the culture about what it meant to have a good life. Uh, in verse 13, Paul says that what he discovered was a secret. Paul uses the verb form of a word from which we get the word mystery in modern English. Now, in Paul's day, that word was used for the arduous initiation process um, for people who are entering what are called mystery religions. They promise secret knowledge for spiritual insiders. Now, for Paul and the other New Testament writers, the word mystery doesn't work in that way. It's not a matter of spiritual hide-and-seek, no. Uh, it, it's not the idea that um, God wants to keep us guessing. But it is something that only God can show us. That's what a mystery is in the New Testament. And for Paul, it's an open secret that anyone can learn. Anyone, including all of us here this morning. So Paul has learned a secret. He's discovered a secret. And in verse 11, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, that word content's an interesting one. Um, Pastor Mike isn't here, so we, we've got to get our little Greek fix for the day because he might be listening later. Um, and that Greek word here is autarkes. It was used by Stoic philosophers to describe one of the most valuable traits of a wise person in their view. Uh, autarkes meant something like our modern phrase, self-sufficient. It fed into the Stoic idea that a person should impassively accept whatever comes his or her way. Now, being born in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, and living here for the past 27 years, I know something about that famous Midwestern Stoicism. And you know how it goes. You don't want to complain even if you are near death. If you just talk about, oh, I'm not feeling well today. You know, that kind of Stoicism. Uh, that's not what Paul is talking about by using this word, unlike the way in which the Stoic philosophers used it. For Paul, this was no fatalism or, or pride at his own unflappability. And we really see that in verse 13. There Paul says that he can face all circumstances through or in the one who dynamically empowers him. Paul had become an expert in what I'll call prepositional living. For Paul, his life was all about living in Christ. That's the preposition. The secret for Paul to being content involves union with the living, risen Christ. He's the one who infused Paul with that dynamic power. I got to say, Philippians 4.13 well, that's a verse that's been used and abused by the modern evangelical church at any rate. Uh, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington III calls this the Superman verse. Uh, you know, during his football period, he's now a baseball player, for example, um, Philippians 4.13 appeared on quarterback Tim Tebow's eye black band-aids. I have tremendous respect for Tim Tebow as a public Christian. Um, but I think in contest, this verse here in Philippians 4 has absolutely nothing to do with some sort of Christian self-actualization, topped off with a little bit of God talk. That's, that's not what Paul is about here in, in Philippians 4. As Witherington says, the context makes it clear, and these are his words, that it has nothing to do with, I can accomplish anything with a little help from the Lord. It's a verse about perseverance in God's will 
and way, not about personal success or triumph or, or even overcoming odds to win an individual victory of some kind. And most emphatically, it is not about God helping us achieve our desires and goals. Well, with that little uh, detour out of the way about Philippians 4.13, let, let's pull all this together, what we've said so far. And let's try to come up with a definition of biblical contentment. Now, here's the definition I like from a book that um, uh, actually Mary Beth Lundgren got me to, on by uh, a pastor, Eric Raymond, called Chasing Contentment. Here's his definition. I like it. Contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. Contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. It's an inner, Christ-connected sufficiency that transcends circumstance. Rather than self-sufficiency for Paul, this is all about Christ-sufficiency. Paradoxically, um, as Ralph Martin, a New Testament commentator, puts it, the secret of Paul's independence was his dependence upon Christ. That's what allowed him to persevere through any and all circumstances. And you know, that's something that Jesus can do only through his Holy Spirit. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, in a gem of a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says, in, I think in surprisingly modern English, um, even though it was written in the 17th century, that contentment is a sweet, inward heart thing. It's a work of the Spirit indoors. I love that. A work of the Spirit indoors. Paul had had that kind of interior redecorating done in his own life by his direct, dynamic, personal connection to the risen Lord Jesus. So that's the secret that Paul had discovered. That's what he had discovered. Now let's look a little bit at how he discovered it. How did Paul make this discovery? Well, what does Paul say here? Help me out here. What, what, what is Paul's method for making this discovery based on Philippians 4? This is an opportunity for some audience participation. Anybody? Okay, suffering, and what, what's the verb there? That's a, that's a noun. Let's, let's go for a verb here. He learned. Thank you. Yes, Paul learned this secret. Learned it. Hmm. Well, uh, in, in fact, if you look at that secrety verb in verse 13, that is a present or a, a uh, perfect tense verb. In other words, Paul's looking back on his life, and he's saying, you know, I learned this as a process, something only possible through lived experience. It wasn't directly injected somehow into Paul's brain. That's not how it worked. He had to learn it. I think we sometimes forget when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and how formidable he is as a person that there must have been many frustrations for him. I mean, think about the context of this book. Another opportunity for audience participation. In what circumstances was Paul writing this letter to the church at Philippi? Where was Paul? Anybody know? Prison. Paul was in prison. Exactly. 
And we learn about how he got there in the book of Acts. Um, he was held under house arrest in Caesarea for two years. We learn about that in Acts 24. And then he was shipped off, shipped off in a harrowing journey to Rome. And uh, you can read about that uh, going forward in the book of Acts. In Acts 27, uh, we, we learn that he suffered shipwreck. After a shipwreck, he had an unfortunate encounter with a reptile over a campfire. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. Um, he um, finally landed in Rome under house arrest, and that's where he's writing this letter. Uh, you can check out 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10 later if you want to look at Paul's list of all of the things that he suffered in his ministry of serving Christ. And I have to say, uh, I think most of the things on that list are things we wouldn't want to face. Now, as difficult as these circumstances were, and Paul really never sugarcoats the difficulties, they acted as Paul's tutor as Paul went through the school of contentment. So Paul's method is pretty simple. He learned the secret through lived experience. Now, uh, something you might have overlooked, uh, perhaps, is who Paul was learning this with. And despite what, uh, at least I often think when I think of the Apostle Paul, he ne really never was a lone ranger uh, in ministry. Uh, we learn in Philippians chapter 2 that two of his friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus, were with him uh, as he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. Earlier, if you look at Acts 16, there was a memorable jailbreak. There he had a friend with him, Silas. Uh, earlier, it was Barnabas in Acts 13. In his last letter, 2 Timothy, he mentions at least 20 friends. So while Christ is all-sufficient for Paul, Christ also gave Paul a community of believers with whom he could face the circumstances of life. So what Paul learned was a secret. How he learned it, the secret of contentment, was through lived experience. And learning this secret led Paul to something crucial, I think, and that's a different perspective on his circumstances. Perspective. Now, perspective is important. Um, my, my wife, Susie, and I have been um, reading a book together, this book by Atul Gawande. It's called Being Mortal. If you're in the stage of life that Susie and I find ourselves in and you have aging parents, this is a tremendous book. Tremendous book. Um, Susie's been caring for uh, her mother, Betty. Betty just turned 90 last week, uh, an amazing party down in Dallas, Texas. Well, in chapter four of Being Mortal, uh, Gawande describes the work of Stanford psychologist Laura Carstensen. Carstensen had been nearly killed at age 21 in a rollover car accident. And as she recovered on the hospital ward, Carstensen was next to older women. And what Carstensen realized is that even though she was only 21, her experience had changed her attitude towards day-to-day -to -day life to be more similar to the women uh, who she shared her hospital room with, who were nearing the end of their lives. Those women were savoring day-to-day -day experience, the small things, small networks of friends. And so was Carstensen. And this led Carstensen to pursue a career as a psychologist. Gawande says this, Carstensen gave her hypothesis the impenetrable name socio-emotional selectivity theory. The simpler way to say it is that perspective matters. Perspective matters. And that was true for the Apostle Paul. 
So how had what Paul learned led to a change in his perspective? Well, you know, I think it's interesting uh, that in spite of, or, or likely because of the secret of contentment that Paul had learned, he had a holy discontent about one thing, and that was about how well he knew Jesus. His relationship with Jesus, he could never do enough to improve upon that relationship. And we see that earlier in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, if you look over to the previous page, if you have the Black Bibles open, here's what Paul says starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss. That word there is skubalon in Greek, dung, refuse, rubbish. All of those things I've counted in this way for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Jumping down to verse 13, Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... Reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And still earlier in chapter 1, Paul says it this way, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, those are famous verses to be sure, but I think they show what Paul had learned he had learned about the surpassing value of knowing and serving Christ. And that was the source of his contentment. That was the secret. Now, uh, we want to point out an important thing here. Paul was content in whatever circumstances, at least that's what he says. And um, I, I think it's worth pointing out, though, that he was certainly not complacent. So those aren't the same. Uh, while he's in prison, we, we mentioned uh, that that's where he wrote Philippians. He wrote other letters as well, and these are great gifts to the church. In fact, he says that during his imprisonment, the Praetorian Guard, the household of Caesar, had been exposed to the gospel. We learned that in the book of Philippians. And so clearly Paul's contentment allowed him to thrive despite his circumstances. So what Paul discovered was a secret, and that secret is about godly, Christ-infused self-sufficiency. He learned it through lived experience. That's how he learned it. And the difference it made in his life was a radical change in his perspective that transformed his day-to-day -day life, even in the midst of, well, what were frankly yucky circumstances. So now what I want to do is to think about some lessons for our lives coming from this passage here in Philippians 4. And I have to say, this is as much for me as it is for anyone else in the room. So I just want to make that clear. I want to think together about how Paul's attitude and what we learn from Paul could transform our lives through the power of the Spirit. What would it look like if our lives together channeled our inner Paul? I mean, what would that look like? we gain that radically different perspective? Well, let me suggest a few things here. First, we should seek to identify and avoid contentment substitutes. Contentment substitutes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the logic here goes something like this. 
I think you and I, we, we likely all use this kind of thinking. If only I, and you fill in the blank, then I'd be content. If only I, think about that for a second, then I'd be content. Now, what we use to fill in that blank will be different for each of us. And to be sure, many of the things in our lives should be enjoyed as God's good gifts. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the problem of them becoming ultimate. When those sources of satisfaction in our lives substitute for ultimate contentment by being dynamically connected to Jesus, that's a problem. And I think the challenge is for each of us to identify what those are in our lives through the help of the Holy Spirit and ask him to help us work on them. Now, I don't know about you. Here, I'll fill in the blanks from my own life. Here are some things that I struggle with. I still do. You wouldn't think that I would after all this time as a professor. But I'm a comparison achiever. Anybody else in the room like that? You know, that's the kind of person who looks at other people says, good on you, Jeff. You're doing pretty well relative to those other people. That's a challenge for me. See, if I can compare myself to other people and feel like I'm doing pretty well or hanging in there, well, that helps me to feel content somehow. Now, hand in hand with uh, that uh, comparative, comparative achiever syndrome is what I'll call the hoop jumper syndrome. I'm really good at this. You know, hoop jumpers... They put a hoop in front of themselves and they jump through the hoop, right? They set short-term or medium-term objectives and they're really good at meeting those objectives. So if I can meet one of those objectives, if I can jump through that next hoop, whatever that hoop might be, then I'm feeling pretty good. I have to fight allowing those kinds of activities to define me rather than my trust in and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, those kinds of things are appropriate satisfactions for a job well done, but only in the context of serving Jesus, not as a substitute for that. Now, maybe the issues are different for you. I don't know. Uh, maybe if you're a student, it, it's getting that, that degree. Maybe if you're working and, and if your job is not particularly satisfying, maybe it's working for that next vacation. Or maybe it's that romantic relationship. Or if you're one of those people we mentioned earlier in the sermon, maybe it's about your social media prowess, who knows. For some of us in the room, it might be outdoor activities or sports. At Geneva Campus Church, your ultimate might even be ultimate Frisbee. And, uh, you know, in any of these things, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts to reveal to us in our quietest moments what those contentment substitutes actually are. And I think that's hard because I think many of us, myself included, have real blind spots um, that can only be exposed through God's work in our lives. So first, identify and avoid those contentment substitutes. Secondly, let me suggest that biblically-based contentment should change how we deal with difficult circumstances. It should change how we deal with difficulty. 
How we handle adversity can be a powerful witness to the non-Christians around us. Now, this is definitely true at UW when state legislatures change tenure policies or amid budget cuts or when my papers or my grant applications are rejected. How I respond in those situations can be an important witness. Now, what that looks like in your setting is going to be different. But it's an opportunity. And it's not just in our professional lives, but also in our personal lives that this plays out. Now, I've shared from this spot before that when my wife Susie and I were at Duke during my postdoc, our younger son Christopher, who's now 29, was diagnosed with severe autism. And, you know, that diagnosis really changed our lives. Much of our life for the past 29 years has been subject to the discipline of loving our son. As I was on my weekly long ride in the country with Christopher yesterday, out west of Madison, I was able to reflect and and pray about what God is teaching me through Christopher. Um, And, you know, uh, I came back and I, I, Susie and I started thinking about this. We calculated that I've taken Christopher to the pool or into the hot tub at our house seven days a week for the last 20 years. Uh, For many days, we have two-a-days where there are two water experiences. So I estimate that there have been about 10,000 water opportunities for me and Christopher in the course of that time. That's a big number. Big number. Now, um, I'm no Apostle Paul, and... um, There are certainly other things that I wish I could be doing with my time often when I'm with Christopher on some of these outings. And yet in the same way, at least in a small way, like the difficulties that Paul experienced, I think I'm at my best when I allow these events to be an opportunity for God's tutorial work in my life. As I'm forced, really, to set aside my self-actualization to care for Christopher. By God's grace, I'm learning a little bit about the secret of contentment. I actually think my wife is very much better at this. She takes Christopher out on what he calls adventures in the afternoons uh, during the week in the community. And to me, she's a daily testimony of God's faithfulness and what godly contentment really looks like. Now, maybe the issues for you don't involve a disabled child. Maybe they involve care for an ailing elderly parent, something I mentioned earlier. Or or maybe it's the sense that you're trapped in an unfulfilling job. Perhaps you're a student wishing you weren't in a particular class. I mean, I know all university experiences are maximally fulfilling all the time as a university professor. Or maybe you're a graduate student feeling you're in your own sort of prison. We call that a dissertation. And um, uh, I think in all of these situations, ask God how he can use these things to teach you his secrets of contentment. You won't be disappointed. So the second opportunity we have is to respond differently in the face of difficulty. And finally... Let me suggest one other thing that ought to be true for us about biblical contentment. It should lead to a different community. I'm an academic. Academia tends to select for individual achievement. There's no question of that. So choosing a community 
choosing a community is a perpetual challenge for me. Now, the great news here at Geneva is we have something that is a great opportunity. We call them households. I mentioned them at the outset of this sermon. They're a fantastic place to experience genuine community. And our household over the years has been a precious place for us to share joys, struggles, lives as Christians. When we share our lives, when we pray for one another, we can help one another to seek eternal contentment. It's my prayer for you and for me that we would discover that same encouragement in community. Can we learn about Paul's secret of contentment? Well, I believe we can. I pray that we can. I pray that we will. If we do, I believe it's going to transform who we are and how we live for Christ. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us everything we need all that we need for godly contentment. For in godly contentment, as Paul says elsewhere, there is great gain. Help us to see it. Help us to live it. Help us to see where we need to depend much more thoroughly on you through the power of your spirit. Please be with all of us this week as we ponder these things. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the life we have in his name. Amen.